Hey, y'all. Welcome to Pain in the Pod. I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and today's episode is coming to you from New York City. Today, I am talking to Justine Harmon and Liz Egan of the amazing and heartbreaking podcast called Broken Hearts. The podcast is about a white married couple, Jennifer and Sarah Hart, who adopted six black children. They were Marcus, 19, Hannah, 16, Devante, 15, Abigail, 14. Jeremiah 14 and Sierra 12. Friends and devoted Facebook followers called them the perfect people with the perfect kids. And from the outside, their life seemed idyllic. So why did Jen drive her family off of a California cliff to their deaths? This is the focus of the podcast. Justine and Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. There's so much ground to cover here. Um, the podcast is uh, super in-depth and long and extensive. But the first thing I want to know is both of your backgrounds and how you came up with the idea to cover this um, story and why you decided to choose the podcast platform. Well, we are, uh, we were both working at Glamour Magazine and we're both writers, I think, and interested in, in storytelling and um, often attracted to stories that have to do with families and occasionally bad news. And this definitely fit the bill. Um, I first heard about the Hart family probably two or three days after they died. And I started following, I, I was curious about what had happened because they looked like people we might, that I might know. I actually looked Jen Hart up on Facebook because her name sounded so familiar. I thought I might know her. Um, and then we were in a morning meeting at Glamour and I brought up the story, how I was kind of obsessed with it and how there were allegations that the heart moms had abused their kids and that this was not an accident. And Justine came up to me after the meeting and said, I'm obsessed with this story. Let's, let's look into it. And so that's how we kind of focused in on it together. And it was only there. three days after it happened, right? Mm, I said? think this was a couple weeks after, because um, Liz had been on vacation with her family when she'd heard about the story. I had, I, I think we started really in earnest looking into the story probably two weeks after. Probably two weeks, yeah. yeah. Um, and so as we sort of winnowed in on what elements of the story we found the most fascinating and found the proper reporter, again, that was Liz's sort of um, groundwork, we realized um, pretty quickly that the audio we were securing with all these interviews might serve a myriad of different projects down the line. And as journalism changes so much, you know, we have to start thinking about these things at the offset. And we've never done a podcast like this at Condé Nast. Um, so we sent the journal or the reporter, Lauren, a kit that we secured for the project. And she as she was doing her research, she was recording audio that later we were able to use for the podcast. But it certainly wasn't um, a super tidy operation. We just sort of started gathering assets and logging them. And later we had to revisit some of those subjects. We had to put some of those audio tapes aside because the person no longer wanted to be on the record in that capacity. So it was... Um, we just kept chipping away at it and we kept trying to make it work. And we have an amazing business development team at Cutting Nast who shopped the project around and found a great partner in How Stuff Works. And they were eager to tell the story on an audio only platform. But it certainly wasn't from the beginning like, we're going to do it this way. We're going to get this many interviews. We're going to secure this 
partner, um, it just was sort of trial and error. Um, so it turned out really well and we're super proud of it. But in retrospect, I see a lot of places where we could have done something differently or been more fastidious or, um, but it was a great learning experience. And I, I think, you know, it turned out the best it could. Well, when you first started, were you thinking we're going to solve this? And by the end of it, we're going to know all the answers. I don't think we ever intended to solve a murder here. Um, I don't have <laughs> that skill set in my body. I'm not like, uh, I was also very pregnant at the time. Like it, it was more, we just wanted to tell the side of the story that you might not feel when you originally read it. We're both, as Liz said, sort of drawn to bad news. We like writing in that vein. We liked how dark it was as it pertains to motherhood and sort of some of the underbelly of some of the issues that really plague this country. Um, we just wanted to feel and to make something that felt similarly. I don't, I, I mean, I think we always knew there was going to be an emotional angle to it. Oh yeah. And we knew from the beginning, obviously that there were eight people who died at the bottom of a cliff. We knew there would be no happy ending. I hoped that we would uncover a clearer motive for for why Jen stopped at the edge of the cliff, paused, and then put the pedal to the metal and went over, you know, all guns blazing, basically. We know right. this was not an accident. Yeah. Um, I had, I, I definitely fantasized that, you know, somebody would uncover a letter or right. that, yeah. um, there would be an answer because it's kind of an unimaginable thing to have happen, especially to kids so young with their whole futures ahead of them. But I think as with most things in life, it turned out to be um, a, a question without an answer or a question with um, 50 small jigsaw pieces that come together to form an answer. So it might not have been that satisfying feeling of we cracked the case. Right. Um, but I think we both realized as we were wrapping it up that when you have that much death and that much loss, um, there's never really a sense of have of an ending. There's right. just a sense of a hard stop and a lot of loss. Yeah. A, a lot of loss. It's, it's, it's so unimaginable. And the way you guys did your podcast and told it, um, I'm always fascinated by podcasters that are telling these long stories that maybe you already know or you don't. But in the way that, like, for example, the guy, um, Dave Colley that's doing the podcast cold, the way he's breaking that down. And you guys, I feel similarly broke it down. Like each episode is telling another part and yeah. it all fits together. You're really getting the big picture of what was going on at that house and I had to do a shout out to um, Lauren who was your field reporter she was she's really amazing. yeah she was great she's and wonderful. I and I think she had some really hard interviews yeah you know she went and talked to the neighbors and and she interviewed people some of whom didn't want to be interviewed and she kept she in a very respectful and dogged way kept after them and earned their trust and but she also interviewed yeah. people who you might think are ancillary to the story and i think that's part of the podcast that's the most interesting um like her 
gaming buddy um, yeah. who I thought had not only an amazing voice, but ama- amazing insight. And people might say, well, that person didn't really know her, but he knew her just as well as the people who thought they knew her IRL. So I thought yeah. Drew, last name redacted, um, mm-hmm. was such an amazing, interesting character. And that kind of third party, you know, interview, I-, I think is what makes this melange of characters so interesting because you would never hear from Drew in a mainstream publication. And I loved the way Lauren's mind works where she just, no character was too small. Mm-hmm. Um, and no subject was too small. Or could, irrelevant. Yeah, right. It was all sort of part of the bigger picture. It was like a Rubik's Cube sort of. Even with the the gaming, yeah. we found out that Jen um, was spending hour upon hour upon hour gaming when ostensibly she was supposed to be homeschooling her, her their kids. Right. She's got six kids she's supposed to be homeschooling yeah. and she's spending 15 hours a day gaming. And this one, yeah. this guy drew that Justine just referred to, he said that in all the messaging they did over many hours and many months, she, she never mentioned that she was homeschooling her kids. And he, once he put the pieces together later, he realized there's no way that she had time in her day to homeschool. But Lauren didn't just interview Drew. She interviewed interviewed five or six other gamers yeah. to the oh. point where we knew it was just going to be a piece of an episode. And I said to her at one point, I think we have enough on the gaming. And then when I <laughs> sat down to actually put together the script where we were covering gaming, I realized she had tapped into all these different perspectives that um, just watching her go was kind of like a, an exercise in journalism. What, you know, I feel like I got a real education in how to do really, really thorough and solid reporting. Well, on the gaming thing, I thought that it was fascinating. And I have like a whole thing here to ask Mm. you about that. Like that she never mentioned that she was married to Mm. this guy, Drew. She never mentioned she was married to a woman. She did mention the kids a lot and then sort of parade them out. And then, like he said, she would then tell these stories of we were at the grocery store and someone said this to us. Or and he said, you know, we thought that there were so many stories that it probably was a lot of hyperbole. Yeah. Like all of these things couldn't be happening every single day. Um, and now, you know, his perspective, I thought was very interesting. Where He's like, looking back on it, it was nuts that she never mentioned that she was married, who she was married to. It was just sort of about her and these kids. And then when he realized she was supposed to be homeschooling them, when he, she was drawing out diagrams. And another thing he said that I thought was interesting that fit a lot into her personality was she was drawn to the wounded bird mm-hmm. and she always wanted to help the other people. And to me, that seems like that's part of her personality was to be like the savior. Yeah. Right. So that sort of ties into why she adopted these kids to appear to be the, the savior, the, the figure that's coming in and fixing these broken birds. But in the end, she was apparently horribly abusive to these children. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads me into Sarah, the other mom who we don't know as much about. And, you know, it just begs the question of what was her role in this? Was she a battered wife? And she just went along with what Jen said. She was the main breadwinner of the family. I don't know. I thought Sarah was such an interesting character because you really didn't, the only people that had anything to say about her was like her coworker at Kohl's. So, so what did you guys feel like you learned about Sarah? Cause I felt like we learned a lot about Jen. You know, it's really hard in situations like this to know where the line is between being thorough and being, you know, 
invasive, thoroughly and tastelessly invasive with a family dynamic. We certainly tried to learn more about Sarah and more about Jed. I mean, as much as possible. You're never going to get the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but we reached out to her family. We reached out to friends. We reached out to people who knew her before she became Jen and Sarah. And we re- we got a lot of pushback. Um, we weren't able to get a lot of those voices on the record. We did learn, you know, certain things that we can't share about who she was and how she was raised and what her family was like, but we're not at liberty to share that with audiences. But what we, what we sort of put together, um, we don't have any evidence of physical abuse, but it does seem that emotional abuse and years and years of grooming and sorry, I'm a little sick. So I just feel like I'm a little phlegmy here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're okay. A little bit like the portrait that, we see through the lens of the coworker is as full of a picture as we got from all of the, you know, characters that we were able to get a little information about her through. Um, she seemed a little less emotionally reactive than Jen, perhaps a little more um, closed off. She was not a social media enthusiast. She was a hard worker. She was always in trouble with her wife. Um, according to some emails that we read between them, kind of half-heartedly trying to make it up while simultaneously working all the time. She seemed a bit more like the person who's happy to be along for the ride. Um, Wow, that's a horrible metaphor considering what happened. But, you know, some people really are shiny and fun to be around and exciting and make your world more vivid. And my sense is that Jen was that for Sarah. Um, and she, you know, reluctantly went to all these shows and was not as big of a fan of the music. She just had less of an appetite for all of the things that Jen seemed to really love. And that by proxy and by connection made her more exciting or made her life fuller. So I think she was very much just, again, along for the ride. And my sense is, I mean, She's complicit for sure. Yeah, I was she, just going to say that. She yeah. didn't do anything to stop what was happening. And yes. my, I mean, she must have known that Jen was withholding food from the kids and, and having in enforcing these really draconian punishments on them. And she didn't do anything. So while I, I want to believe there was somebody in the scenario that wasn't evil, I, I can't give her too much sympathy because she no. had six kids of course. who were hungry and yeah. that's not right. But I do think yeah. the psychology of these these closed circuit ecosystems, like I was watching Leaving Neverland last night and it's so easy, and that's the Michael Jackson documentary about mm-hmm. sex abuse, um, it's so easy to put a finger at the moms and say, how could you leave your children alone with this monster? But, you know, things are really hazy when you're really close to them. Again, I'm I'm with Liz. I think at the end of the day, these women did things that are unforgivably evil, both of them. But I, I do think it was probably a little harder to see the forest or the trees when you're that that close to it. And maybe there were, you know, a whole lot of different ways that you're able to compartmentalize or explain away the behavior a little bit. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. 
These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. Okay, we're back. So, you know, I was very taken with the account of the neighbors who, um, Dana and Bruce. Bruce, Bruce okay. That encountered, um, Hannah and Devante. And so for the most part, uh, of the six kids, those were the two that we seem to know the most about. Devante, because he was the, with the famous viral picture of him hugging the cop, you know, he always had like the flower headband and stuff. And they would kind of parade them out to these festivals and things. Um, and, Hannah we know about because she's the one that escaped and went over to the neighbors. And then was it her or Devante that started coming over and getting the tortillas? That was Devante. We refer that we, as we were putting together the podcast, we referred to them as the reporters because mm-hmm. they were the kids who kind of sounded the alarm and said, you know, something is not right in our house. Hannah jumped out the window. Devante went over to Dana and Bruce's house on a daily basis, sometimes twice a day over the course of, I think, a week-long period, um, asking for food, asking Dana and Bruce to hide non-perishable food in a in a um, section of fence where his moms wouldn't be able to see it. It does beg the question, was he planning some kind of getaway? And it didn't escape our notice that um, Hannah and Devante were not found immediately at the crash site. Uh, Devante, has, his whereabouts are still unknown. His body has not been found. Um, and we did wonder if they had escaped and they weren't in the in the car when it went over the cliff. Um, now, putting together all the pieces, I actually do think they were in the car, but it's interesting to me that they were the ones who sought out Dana and Bruce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, of the six of them, that's why at the beginning I wanted to make sure to say all their names and all their ages. And it is interesting when you see the pictures of them and someone had said that they all, someone thought that they were all the same age, right? And so do you guys feel that Sarah and Jen and maybe Jen more especially was starting to get a little panicky that the older kids were getting old enough to go out into the world and perhaps tell on them? I think it's certainly possible. Um, The eldest son was 19 and he was still living at home. So it's not as if the kids were following a traditional trajectory of leaving home and, you know, establishing their own life. I think that these, like in the Turpin case, were um, kids without a lot of sense of what happened in the world that exists outside of their family. So I don't know what the next step was if it wasn't this. I don't know how Jen anticipated, you know, Marcus going out and trying to make a living. There were a lot of, you know, allegations that he had developmental disorders and issues. Again, all of these things are from an unreliable narrator. And we've, you know, we we discuss at length sort of what kind of conditions these kids were uh, adopted with and what sort of the prognoses were there. But um, my sense is that there wasn't a huge threat that the kids were going to go tell. Like, I I think the big threat was really financial. Yeah. That as the kids turned 18, Jen and Sarah st- stood to receive less and less money 
from the state. For, they they received a monthly stipend for the kids that they adopted out of foster care. Yeah, I think you said $1,200 a month per yeah. kid. Yeah, but so the, I mean, that's a lot of money. I guess I'm just thinking like for this to have gone on as long as it did um, and I think that the women perhaps got cocky and were like, we're never going to get caught. I mean, this is an inter, you know, three different states over the course of a decade. I don't think that there was this sense I mean, maybe at the end with CPS banging down the door, but I don't necessarily think that they were super conscientious that their kids could have any real impact on the way that they were perceived. I think Jen probably thought she had a pretty good handle on the situation is my sense. It's funny. I think that they painted themselves into a corner and that they realized little by little that the money was going to stop coming in, that they had a house full of uneducated ill-prepared, unhappy kids. Um, what to me is the big question mark is if Jen knew when they left the house yeah. that she would drive off the cliff. Was it a place they had driven by before? They were big road trippers. Was it a cliff, an area that she knew well that she went back to with the intention of killing them all? Or was it just an in-the-moment um were the kids all screaming in the car? Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we can all we can relate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't think it was the latter. But I they're think not it, like criminal masterminds either. Yeah. So right. it's like this weird sort of anomaly where they were able to get away with a pretty sophisticated operation for so long. Mm-hmm. Six kids getting subsidies from different states, keeping these children from their biological families. Dodging, you know, it's almost like they're Bonnie and Clyde, but I don't get the sense that all of that was carefully calculated. I mean, they're like Jen's gaming all day and Sarah's at Kohl's. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, I think in retrospect, things line up and it's a, it's a horrible, not a comedy of errors, but like narrow misses and mistakes that all lead up to this big catastrophe finish. But I don't think any of this was by design to assert. I think it was just, you know, women, two women who had a very ridiculous uh, amount of control over these six kids. And it spiraled into something that I don't think anyone could have done, a, like done by design. I don't think they adopted six kids in such a short period of time with the intention of starving them torturing them, imprisoning them. But I do think that they bit off way more than they could chew. And I think that obviously I blame the driver of the car who was Jen, but I also really blame a system that allowed two moms with not a great support system to adopt six kids. I have three kids. I find them pretty overwhelming and they're, they're spaced over six years Yeah, to suddenly come into six kids in, in basically two years is um, it to me, it's really unimaginable. Um, so I think if any, any good comes out of this podcast, I hope it's a, you know, a hard look at how children are adopted and how, you know, the post-adoption support that parents receive. Yeah, I have that in my notes to ask you about. Um, the six children were adopted through the system in Texas. Mm-hmm. And what disturbed me the most was that the three of them that were siblings um, were with a family member 
and the family member made a mistake by letting the biological mother babysit the kids because she had to go to work. And so, and just immediately they were taken away from their biological grandmother who wanted them and their stepdad who wanted them. It was so, their aunt. Just Oh, it was yeah, their aunt, was their not aunt. their grandmother. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, so what did you walk away thinking like, this system is really, really broken when there's family that wants these children. And I, I loved the whole aspect that you guys did with the transracial adoption and the whole looking at that. I, I just, I, I don't know. I just came away with more questions than answers about the adoption system. So did we. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, when I first heard about Priscilla Cel- Celestine, who was the aunt mm-hmm. who wanted to adopt the kids, I, that was one of the things that was like the, one of the most appalling things to me that there was biological family that wanted them and that she had rearranged her life in many ways, moved into a bigger place and, um, was really prepared to take them. And then when the podcast started airing, I have a very close friend who's a social worker who said, you know, there's a really hard line if a foster parent leaves the kids with the biological parent who is a drug addict. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes. It doesn't matter if it's an hour. It's a hard line. Okay. So it, to me, there are a lot of pieces that add up to um, change that could happen. Another one is there's no communication between states. If you have a child abuse um, charge in Minnesota, you can move to Oregon and you have a clean slate. And you can adopt three more children. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I'm oversimplifying a little right, bit. Right, But, um, but that- with any interstate issues and things on a federal level versus a state level, like this country is very complicated and there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of paperwork. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of papers that we looked through, you know, establishing that these women were good parents, were suitable parents. There's so much stuff and so much noise and so much procedure involved in adoption as there is with so many different, you know, loans or um, mortgages. Like everything is so complicated in this country. And I think this is um, a similar situation where the more we learned about the interstate adoption laws and how these things work and who governs what and where the money comes from, it's a mess. It's a clusterfuck. It is not a simple topic. Um, and to untangle it would take minds, I think, sharper than ours. But we, I mean, if we're able to so easily see the loopholes and the issues in the system, it is not a very um, well-designed situation at all. And it is really complicated. And the further we got into how this happened and how it was pulled off and how many um errors there were on behalf of the adoption agency that facilitated these adoptions. I mean, it's, it's again, just a testament to how poorly designed this whole situation was. It's not, it's not clean at Mm -hmm. all what happened here. And there are so many loose ends and loose parts and it, it's just, it's so, uh, it's so complicated. From the people I know that have uh, gone through adoption or 
it seems, and I, I work part-time in a little uh, children's store in the D.C. area, and a lady came in the other day, and she was saying, oh, I'm in, you know, in the midst of adoption, and she was telling me about it, and I was relating to her a story about my friend who adopted a little boy. She said, well, you know, we're, we're trying to get a child from Texas or Florida, mm-hmm. and I've heard, I, I hear that over and over with people doing adoption. It's Texas and Florida, so they must have, and that's where were all six of the kids adopted from from Texas? From Texas, yes, from Houston. Yeah, yeah, so that Texas and Florida must be known for their lax laws. We go into know? the governing principles of adopting from Texas and how you get paid subsidies and how the state benefits from placing families out of state. Um, and actually the details of all of that have evaded me a little bit or, um, since. But yeah, I... Texas was the focus. We I can't speak to what happens in Florida as much. Well, I had an interesting conversation with an adoption expert, and we were talking about how the state of Texas was paying these subsidies to Jen and Sarah every month. And I said, well, shouldn't they be following up to make sure that their money is going to a um, – is being spent well and that the kids are being well cared for? And she said uh, – and she was right – what, you know, once you adopt a kid, that's your kid. You, there's, right. it's, yeah. it's not like when I took my kids home from the hospital, the hospital continues to follow up with me. It, right. You know. Okay. That makes sense. So, right. That is another way to look at it that they didn't, Jen and Sarah did not seek out the support that was available to them. Um, but the idea, I mean, maybe, maybe the problem started when the kid, the kids were in foster care. Maybe they never should have been allowed, you know, they shouldn't have been able to adopt all these kids in the first place. But once you adopt a kid, that's, you know, yeah. oh, you're their your, mom. Yeah. This is your, this is your child. Right. Yeah. The, you, your point is great about, yeah. When you go Big home from brother the hospital. Can't step yeah. In. Right. Wow. So I, I want another thing I want to talk about. We talking about Jen's online persona with this gaming, what it, the, the big thing in this story to me is her, Facebook persona, because we all know people that it's like thou dost protest too much, right? Everything on Facebook is perfect and your kids are perfect and your husband's perfect. And, you know, 10 years with this guy, you know, I, I mean, you <laughs> who's know, not on Facebook. Yeah. Who's not on Facebook. And like, you know, <laughs> right? I never it, understand that. It'll drive you nuts. Cause you're like, okay, something's definitely yeah. going on there. That's, you know, something is off. So, I never thought that though, or I never, that's never my first instinct. I'm always buying it at face value because that's how I'm wired. And I think that's how a lot of us are wired. This is a new platform by all for all intents and purposes, yes, it was a 10-year con or how how long was she doing the Facebook thing? Almost 10 years. Yeah. But um, I don't think any of us really understands. I think this might be a case study in, you know, 50 years about the emerging platforms that we used in our day-to-day lives but didn't really have a firm handle on. Um, and I still, like, I'm on Instagram. I can't stop scrolling. I keep opening it. I keep looking at it. I, I, I'm not even thinking about it subconscious. I have opinions about people. I have favorites. It is all so <laughs> past our, it's not logic. It's emotional. Um, and when I see that, someone being like, I love my husband. He was the biggest supporter of me when I, you know, had two fractured ribs. I just buy it. Like, I <laughs> I don't think thou protest too much. I think 
oh, he seems really nice and like he he's good looking or she's good looking and that, that I must def- be awesome. I definitely them. fall for the fantasy. I fall for it all the time. I love that. I love a happy ending. I love, yeah. you know, okay, you well, know, maybe I'm just photos. a bitch. I don't no, know. No, no, <laughs> I am too. I am too. But I, I think that this looking through hundreds of Jen's Facebook posts was yeah. a very powerful reminder that looking at those pictures is not, a, you could take away from it what you want, but I realized for me, it's not a substitute for seeing people in real life. Like, yeah. um, Justine has heard me say this so many times, but I remember a time where I would go to my daughter's two hour swim practice and I would sit and chat with the other parents. Yeah. Right. And now when I go to one of her two hour swim practices, well, thank God she has, has a driver's license so she can drive herself. <laughs> but, um, now I take my phone out and I start scrolling through Facebook and I'm sometimes looking at the Facebook pictures of the very people I'm sitting with. Yes. But it's so much easier just to look at Facebook than it is to have an actual conversation. Yes. So if there's a moral to the story, it's that's really pathetic. Yeah. Well, the thing about her, her, I don't know, they just seemed, her posts seemed so like holier than thou, like, yeah. you know... This is my, this is my Kai. This is my kid. He's so amazing. And then, you know, what people had said was, um, she would pose the kids for the pictures, you know, like the one I think about Devante with the guitar mm-hmm. and like, you that's know, my string bean. yeah, that's my string bean. <laughs> and why are you naked? I'm not naked. I'm wearing a guitar. That's my string bean. And they said like, you know, you pose the kid for this picture, get it perfect, get your perfect caption. Yeah. And then you go right back to gaming and ignoring your children, you know. This is not to say that I'm not all about a good, you know, photo opportunity or, you know, my kids are older now too and I can't do it quite as much. But I I personally, when I'm scrolling through some of that stuff, I buy it 80% of the time. 20% of the time I'm like, this person is full of it. I know that their husband is a jerk. I know that they're, you know, you know, that's just none of that's true. I don't buy it when they claim their kids are saying clever things. And in the case of the hearts, making broad and wise sociological statements, Um, the pictures I know you can pose, but that's just the things that she claimed the kids said, I just think were lies. Well, especially if they had had not been educated, they definitely weren't making these broad generalizations of the, the, you know, race relations of the world. Right. And, you know, and I like that story that she told about one of the, somebody coming up to one of the kids saying, I bet you're going to be a baseball player or an athlete implying that because the child was black, he would be an athlete. I'm just like, do we really think that happens? Do we think any of that stuff happens? I think that she was the greatest victim in her own world and she enjoyed painting these scenarios where somebody in her orbit was really wronged and um and she's the savior though i think that's a pretty good read yeah i I like what liz just said um thank you (laughs) um i think that's accurate and do i think that that anecdote is factual no i i i mean all of this when i yesterday i was downloading some of the facebook posts into a folder actually and they were populating in the folder and it was like 319 of 456 were uploading and I was looking over and over these pictures and these kids and the amount of time spent curating this lie or this version of a lie and then thinking about my own Instagram feed which is hardly artful but still exists Mm -hmm. who's that for like why am I doing that does that make me feel better sometimes it does like if I go on a vacation for a week, 
I almost feel obliged to show some proof that it happened. Again, I, I, as someone who is technically a millennial, but is like a little older than some of the people who are fluent in these technologies, I find it all super fascinating why Mm -hmm. we're compelled to do this, what the psychological underpinnings of sharing, you know, a version of your truth with the world is. And I think that's a really interesting part of the story. The more we talk about it, I still can't believe how big of a role social media played in all of this. It also gave her a voice as we were collecting information about them. One of the challenges of doing a podcast about a family that has died is it's hard to, to capture their, their voices. Um, and even though we tried very hard to take Jen's Facebook posts with a big grain of salt, um, it was helpful just to hear, I, I could hear her voice in my head, knowing she was a huge fabulist and that probably 90% of what I was reading was phony. It, it helped me try to understand how she, how her mind worked. But how right. often do you get these artifacts for, you know, a story like this? Like, yeah. yes, it's an incomplete picture. Yes, it's full of lies, but these are tangible vestiges of life lived. I mm-hmm. mean, they are humans in the pictures. There's someone put these words together. They're in a home decorated by someone. Like, there's yeah. so much humanity there in each of these pictures and so much vulnerability and so much cunning and so much heartbreak. These pictures, and it's hard to even try to communicate through an audio-only platform how much we've seen, but we've seen so much and we've read so much. I've never had so much access and yet felt so artfully distanced from a subject. It's it's a really complicated scenario, and I really don't think we understand um, the implications of what social media and leaving this trail online, Jen's still on there, you know, and I've had friends who die and you see their Spotify playlists and we leave these imprints of ourselves on the internet forever. And there are so many different ways to look at it and so many stories to tell about those imprints. And I, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's truly astounding. I agree. Okay. We're going to take another break. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. I want to ask you guys, um, when we're talking about this and I'm a mom, I have two teenagers and, um, I know you have older kids and I, you just had a baby, Justine. Um, yes. congratulations. Thank you. So 
when the two of you are telling the story on the podcast and, and you many times mentioned that you're also mothers, like how, how did that play into when you're telling the story? Like I'm just imagining if I'm trying to tell this story and all the information that you had to like put in your brain yeah. to tell the story, how hard was that for you guys? Some days it was very hard. Some days it was not hard at all. I think it, right now having taken some time away from this story, this is more uncomfortable than I felt sort of talking about this in a while because after a while, it just sort of becomes, I mean, we're so inundated with true crime these days Yes, as entertainment. You know, you watch Dirty John, you're like, you don't see the death. You just see the entertainment value sometimes. And that's a different story, of course, um, and where the victim gets their comeuppance. But I think having spent so much time away from the story and coming back to it, it, it did take an emotional toll. And having kids and I have young kids and Liz has older kids and we talked about that a lot. But at a certain point when you're telling a story, things like that become a framing device or an easily digestible narrative to wrap your head around. Um, you're constantly using those, those facts of life as framework to tell your story as opposed to, you know, just another complicated element. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we were like, well, mothers, this is a story about mothers. Like that's a tidy bow. Um, I, it seems like personally it would be very hard. It was very hard. It was. It's somebody starving their children and all the abuse and the, uh, examples of, you know, oh, well, we would have to lay on these mattresses or, I mean, it just seems like it's like, for me, it's very hard to, to ingest it because I'm like, oh, I, you know, it hurts my heart for, for sure. But yeah. you can also distance it when you when you need to, or at least I'm capable of doing that. Um, to me, the thought of the three seconds or so between when the car went off the road and when it landed on the rocks, where some or all of the kids in that car must have known that this person that they trusted on some level, even if she didn't treat them well was driving them to their death and in a really violent way, the thought of their fear really haunts me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it was a um it was a very, very hard story to live with for nine months. And I think one thing that really drove that home is so having never worked on a podcast before, I didn't realize how similar it is. The ed- the editing process is very similar to the process that we would use, you know, in editing a print piece, Mm -hmm. but instead you're listening over and over and you're making notes about cuts and, you know, music or whatever. And I got into the habit of listening to the various drafts at my, you know, after dinner at my dining room table. And, um, it just so happens that my, my sixth grader, who's 11 years old, is often packing her lunch at that time of, of day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she knew the story. I had told her what I was working on. She's one of those people who is drawn only to the sun. She's just like oh. a very, if, if I could pick a color for her, it would be yellow. She's yeah. just a cheerful person for the most part. Um, and so I wasn't really thinking of what it would be like for her to hear what was going on. And there was a little clip in the very beginning of the podcast where we hear the kids' voices and they're singing this song and they're saying over and over again, the lyrics are, we are so provided for, we are so provided for. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden my daughter said, I don't like your podcast. And I, I, I just thought, 
first of all, what kind of mother (laughs) plays this in front of their 11 year old? But it was like, it really hit me. Like I tried to remember the entire time. This is, these are lives that are, are absent from this earth, but to hear it from my own kid to, to be reminded of it was, um, and, and I should add, my kids are not the type that say clever and Facebook worthy things very often. I, and I didn't post that on Facebook. I wonder if her recollection of this moment is different. And she's like, I know, actually, she that's not how remember. I said it. I said <laughs> totally. it differently. I didn't I mean, say I don't like your podcast. I said, what I said was, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think this is a complicated part too is, you know, we had to coexist with this and we had to tell the story. And some days I cared a whole lot. And I thought about it and some days it was my job. And I, I think how I'll feel about this all in five years or 10 years, it'll change. Um, and we, we tried to be as empathetic and careful and thoughtful as possible. But I do think the true crime genre is fraught with issues too. Um, and we did, at the end of the day, hope to highlight the fact that there are you know huge loopholes in the systems that are supposed to care for our most vulnerable society members and also that these poor kids, you know, these are children. But we also wanted to tell a story that kept people listening and that felt interesting and compelling. So it's an ethical quandary a little bit. Well, Speaking of the true crime, I think I watch a lot of true crime documentaries mm-hmm. and listen to a lot of podcasts and all that. So that's where my mind thinks, why did Jen do this this way? If she really in her mind was like, we're all going to go down in flames together, why not literally just give everybody Benadryl and set the house on fire or something? Now, she had a I – mean, do you know what I mean? That, that's where my mind goes because I'm twisted. But, but uh-huh. I, I think that – why do it in this way? And also, we're not even mentioning that she had uh, elevated blood alcohol content. So she was so, somewhat drunk when all this happened. And so that's why I think it was sort of, in my opinion, was sort of a spur of the moment. Like, everyone's screaming, you're driving me crazy. I'll show you. you know. And I think that from Jen's personality, what we learned from your podcast, this was the big dramatic ending that for her was like, you know, cause she's such the victim and she didn't think it would come back to, she killed everybody. It would be like this poor family, you know, accidentally went off this cliff, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know because there was this incident in Missoula years before where ostensibly this same car, this Yukon went off a cliff basically. And she details it um, on her Facebook and we go through it a bit in the podcast, but oh, yeah, she, turned she claims around, they're all the kids are hanging, hanging upside, upside down. down um, and it was, you know, by the grace of God that they didn't die. I find that to be like a strange coincidence for this to be so spur of the moment. Um, I also think, you know, she's not a full blown idiot. She knows there are toxicology reports. She knows that there are, I don't think anyone would have sort of gone through the paces I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have a firm thought here. It's just I'm not necessarily convinced that it was a spur of the moment. Like, oh, you guys are driving me nuts. I'm going to drive off this cliff. I, I don't see it like that. I also, with regard to the toxicology report, she did have a heightened blood alcohol content level, but it wasn't, I mean, yes, legally drunk, but I, I think she probably could have had two or three glasses of wine and had the BAC that she had that night. Uh, so I'm not convinced that she was completely out of her mind either. Um, I think there was a level of 
planning here. My I senses. agree. I agree. Okay. Although now is a good time to mention that the coroner's inquest yeah. is happening in April and the Mendocino County Sheriff has said there, there are big things to be revealed. Right. Um, so, I mean, we wonder, did one of them have a terminal illness? I think we've ruled that out. W- was one of the kids sick? I think we've ruled that out, although their medical records were spotty at best. Um, so I do wonder if there's, you know, what the big reveal is in, in April. And I think we, you know, we'll keep a close eye on that. I was going to ask if you were going to cover that and we do are. like a, an updated, yeah. yeah, like a bonus. Yes, level, Laura level will be a, attending the inquest and we, will oh, okay. we, and we will be doing a bonus episode. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're curious just like everyone else about what they might have uncovered with regard to the crash site and what happened that day. Yeah, he said, you guys had, you know, you had his clip of him talking and he said, that it would be, you know, shocking revelations, and then yeah, know, it would. I, he uses some bombastic language like yeah, it will shock the collective conscience. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The water cooler conversation <laughs> across the me. nation. Yeah, but uh, what could it be? I mean, that's the I, thing. I don't understand. Yes, we will find out. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it could be. I hope it's something that makes this feel better, but I don't or, anticipate or that. Make some sort of sense of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. It 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 does. It leaves you with a lot of uh, unanswered questions. But I I do have that here at the end. I wanted to ask what you guys full full like theory opinion is. But it turns out, you know, I think we all kind of have the same. Like, you don't know why why did she do it? Yeah, why, and did they plan it together? And you know, I don't know. But I do think we're trained by television and film to be like, well, what's the motive? And was it, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library? With right. the, um, I think all crimes, I mean, I was watching the Melissa McCarthy movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm-hmm. A petty crime, a white collar crime, a smaller, you know, situation. But also at the end of the day, really complicated, really um, nuanced. And I, I think human behavior can't be categorized that way. People don't just say, I mean, maybe they do. I, but my sense is people don't kill for one specific reason. I don't think people reach their breaking point because of, you know, one thing that happened. It's a, it's a collection of things and it's an unsavory cocktail of, you know, truths that got them here. And I, I never think it's going to be as clean as a motive. And we have a legal system that tries to winnow down the complicated behaviors of humans into, you know, black and white situations. And I don't think it's like that. And I, I, I'm not sympathizing with what happened here at all, but I think it's really, really complex. It's not going to be a quick, easy answer. No, like no all of what, a sudden right? it's because there oh, was we found a, note a lien it, on the yeah. house yeah. and there it is. Aha. Like, yeah. That's not how it works. Yeah, we found a note and it explains everything. Um, so r- wrapping up here, I, I did want to just let you guys know again, I'm like so thrilled that you came in the studio to do this. But at the end of my podcast, it's because my podcast is about podcasts. I wanted to know, like, do you guys have any go-to podcasts that you listen to or any like different or interesting ones that maybe my listeners have never heard of? Um, I think that's a good question for Justine. It's, she's a, she's it's a, a podcast. I'm more of a podcaster than Liz, but um, 
through this process, I became familiar with the iTunes charts, which I hadn't necessarily hawked previously. Yeah. And now I am a sucker for what is sort of trending. Yes. So I have been listening like everyone else to, you know, the dropout I've been listening yes. to over my dead body, which yep. I'm loving. Um, I also just love classics like this American life never gets old to me. I think they are the gold standard of storytelling and I hope to have even scratched the surface of the empathy with which they tell their human stories. Um, but I, I have now become obsessed with appointment podcasting, mm -hmm. waiting each week for yes. something, which I had never done before, which we sort of did here. And I, I realized how cruel that is. Um, <laughs> I, it's, but what else have I listened to that I absolutely love? It's, it's, it's such a thrill when you get like, so like, for example, when you guys will cover this coroner's inquest, yeah. the little bonus will pop up on your phone. Right. And you'll be, Ooh, they totally. put a new episode out and you get all excited about it. Oh yeah. I feel that way about fresh air. It'll be like John C. Riley, And I'm like, hello. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. That's what's exciting to me, but that would be like a real big, big day for me. If that, I think that happened recently. Um, and I loved hearing about um, Ben Stiller on Escape at Dannemora on Fresh Air. Oh, yeah. All of these things uh -huh. when okay. it's like an intersection of my off-air interests. Um, but I also, I loved, loved season two of In the Dark about Curtis Flowers. I thought that was masterful. That's Mississippi. That's where I'm from. I thought that was just a brilliant piece of reporting yes. and one that everyone should aspire to the level of detail there. Um, Madeline yeah, Warren I mean, she moved. She moved to Winona. I mean. It's insane. I'm going to tell you something that's. Not necessarily a place you want to move to. Uh, no, no shade to Winona. Um, listen, but they, Liz didn't say anything about her podcast. Sorry, I gobbled. Oh, well, mine are very simple. Okay, let's do I it. love <laughs> the Daily, the New York Times yes, podcast. Yes, I love Slow Burn. Okay, um, yep. and I loved the Dropout. I just finished it. Me too. Um, I do feel like there's um there's a blank space in the podcast universe for it. Doesn't have to be happy stories. But I think there's there's a gray area between humor podcasts and true crime podcasts that is not happening right now. It might be happening. It's oh, just yeah. not like it's it's not coming our... up on the charts. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I I still feel like we're. I mean, I know podcasts have been around for a while, but I still feel like there's a space for something. Yellow? Is something, this is going to sound <laughs> yes. really corny, but I wish there was a little more beauty in podcasts. Like before okay. Garrison Keillor was, was dethroned by Me Too, I used to listen to his podcast every day. It was just one poem every day. And he talked about literary um, happenings in history on that day. Um, it's, it sounds a little wonky, but to me that it was like three minutes of beauty and peace in my day. Like I don't meditate, but I used to listen to that podcast. Uh -huh. I feel like there's, there's, that's what I'm looking for right now. And I haven't found it. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to research that and find something. Please for you. do. I would love it. I'm okay. all dark all the time. <laughs> that's, gonna, what I, that's what I love about but it. I, but you make, you, make a, you make a great point. There's like lots of true crime ones and then there's lots of humorous ones, yeah. you know, and then you have like the intersection of both, like my favorite murder, which is funny also about murder. So, all right, right. all right. I'm going to, I'm going to take that as a personal challenge. Um, I want you to tell people where they can find out more about the podcast and to follow you guys and your social media and, you know, blah, blah, that stuff that we do. For more documents and photos pertaining to this podcast, you can go to glamour.com backslash, or I guess you don't say backslash anymore. No, you don't. Glamour.com slash broken hearts, H-A-R-T-S. And um, this is Justine. I'm on Twitter at Justine Harmon, J-U-S-T-I-N-E, H-A-R-M-A-N. 
um, and Instagram, but I'm private because of some of the things we've discussed here today, but I've yes. always been private. Yes. And I'm Liz Egan and I'm on Twitter at, at Liz Egan and on Instagram at a hundred postcards where I write a postcard to president Trump pretty much every day, usually complaining. Okay. I was about to say, are they, are they no, complimentary not postcards? No. Okay. But they're also no. the intersection of a crime against humanity and humor because Liz just, brings to them. I a, love that. Follow me at 100 postcards. It's, it's on Instagram. A crusade. One postcard at a time with beautiful postage. Thank you, Justine. I've written 400, po- almost 400 postcards. Do I have actually, yet to receive you, a response. You, you actually mail them every day. I mail them every day. I have a beautiful stamp collection. I put a lot of work into it. It's awesome. It's, it's a little, it's my midlife really crisis. Amazing. This is just like a little gem at the end of this podcast. Thank I wasn't you. expecting. That's amazing. Thank you. Yes. I don't know why I do it, it's, but I do it. It's, it's so much better than you are even picturing. It's okay, I can't wait. hilarious and shrewd and savage and just wonderful. Oh my gosh. Okay, 100 postcards. All right. Well, thank you girls very much. This ladies, I shouldn't say girls, ladies, very much for coming. And it was great to be here in New York and get to talk to people. I don't get to talk to people in person too much. I'm usually just sort of sitting in my guest room kind of talking to the wall. So this has been really nice. Thanks for thank having us. Thank you for having us. Okay, thanks.